Well, good morning. I hadn't finished my cough drop yet, so <laughs> I, uh, I have a cold, so I'm going to try to get through this without a coughing fit. <clears throat> and I apologize to all the evening ladies who are listening to the recording. I will try not to hack into the mic. Uh, I sound a lot worse than I feel, though, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, so good morning. My name's Lynn Ericks. And it really is a privilege to be speaking to you this morning concerning Lesson 8. Lesson 8, can you believe that already? And it's covering all of Chapter 7. I'm so lucky, I got a whole chapter. Um, So our Hebrew study is titled Consider Christ. And guess what? We're going to be doing the same thing again this morning. We're going to be considering Christ in our time together. So if you have your Bible, get it out. If you don't, there's one underneath your chair in front of you. Um, I am going to cover, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, That way, when you get to your discussion groups, it's fresh in your mind, and we're all on the same page, so to speak. So before we get into the text, though, it's really pretty straightforward when I look at mine. I don't know if your Bible has headings or subtitles that kind of give you an idea of what the chapter's about, but mine does. And in this particular case, it really was very helpful for me because it outlined my lecture for me. Um, So mine says the priestly order of Melchizedek first in the first part, um, and that goes through the first um, 10 verses. And then the second part says, Jesus compared to Melchizedek. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. I've had a lot of friends come up to me and say, oh, good, I'm so glad you're speaking on Melchizedek. And, and they'll say, you know, how do I say that? And, um, and so I hope I cover it well. But what you need to remember is we're not talking about Melchizedek and just Melchizedek. We're talking about Christ. And so that's, that's what I hope is clear to you um, after we leave after we leave this morning. Um, Do you remember way back in our first lecture when Tana gave us an introduction into the book of Hebrews and she said, well, we could really sum up Hebrews by saying Jesus is better. So I have joked with friends that I would just stand up here and say, well, Jesus is better and I could sit down and I'd be done. Um, But as the Lord would have it, he had a few more things for me to say. So I guess I won't be sitting down. So instead, we'll consider again first who Melchizedek is, and in, in coupling with that, we'll also talk about this Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And then, in light of that, we gain a whole new perspective on this New Testament, don't we? On Christ, on Christ's priesthood, and what that really means for us. So after we do that, then we'll consider what's our response? What should we do with it? What's our so what? What are you going to remember when you leave this place? Maybe you'll get Melchizedek cleared up. Maybe you'll have a new understanding of who Christ is in relation to him. But hopefully what you'll leave with is the so what. So before I get into the text, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for setting this time aside for us this morning, and I thank you for each woman here and each person listening to the recording later. I pray I'll handle your truth well and clearly. 
I pray that you'll help us to draw near to you through this text, what we learn. And as we do draw near to you, please give us your strength to live out these truths presented today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I need a bigger podium or a smaller Bible. All right, let's go through chapter 7. It's a long one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, 
He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son who has been made perfect forever. All right, well, as is true every week, there's a lot in this text for us to consider. Remember in lesson two, when Laura Dunchy spoke to us about Jesus being superior to the angels? She expertly taught us about Christ's kingship and his deity. But she made it clear that in explaining Christ's superiority to angels, it wasn't and isn't a study about angels. It's about Christ. It's about Christ in relation to angels, and it's the same thing here. It's not an exhaustive study on Melchizedek or even on the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, but necessarily to understand the fullness of Christ's priesthood and how it is better, we must look at both Melchizedek and the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. We especially need to do this because we know that this sermon letter was written to an audience of second-generation Jewish Christians who were steeped in tradition and were tempted to give up Christ and revert back to their old ways, so to speak. They esteemed Abraham. They esteemed Moses and the law. They esteemed their earthly high priest. And they were in danger of reverting back. And so to say that Jesus is better than all of these is really saying something. So let's first consider this Old Testament priesthood. And this probably is a little bit of a review, but I guess it bears repeating. So fundamentally, at the very basic level, what's a priest? The word priest is used somewhere around 35 times in the book of Hebrews alone. And when I hear the word priest today in conversation, I think about a priest and his role in the Catholic Church today. But if I expand my meaning, my understanding of the word priest to a basic or broader understanding, I really just have to focus on the fact that a priest is a man chosen or appointed by God to act on behalf of people in relation to God. And we already learned that in Lesson 6, two weeks ago, covering chapter 4, verse 14 through 510. In that lesson, we learned that Old Testament priests offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hebrews 5, 2-3 tells us that priests, because they themselves were beset with weakness, were to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, and also obligated to offer sacrifices for their own sins. The high priest entered the holy place in the tabernacle once a year to perform sacrifices on behalf of the nation of Israel. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Priests were absolutely necessary to take on God's judgment for the sins of the people. They were the true intermediaries, the go-between for the people and God. The Old Testament priests had to be descendants of Aaron, a Levite, or a man from the tribe of Levi. Therefore, during the Old Testament times, priests were established by God through their lineage and only through their lineage. So, under the law, no one outside the lineage of Aaron could possibly be appointed a priest. But then came Melchizedek. And we know from today's text that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
So what's different about Melchizedek? What's different from him as opposed to these other Old Testament priests? Well, in short, everything. Little detail is provided about Melchizedek's life. He appears actually quite suddenly in Genesis 14, 17. And even there, not much detail is given about him. However, the names he was given reveal some really key facts about him. He was king of Salem, described as a priest of God Most High. This tells us he was indeed a king, and specifically that he was king of Jerusalem, because Salem was that shortened or ancient name for Jerusalem. The fact that he was priest of God Most High tells us that he was a king who served the same God that Abraham did. In the Genesis story, we, want, we learn that Melchizedek blessed Abraham by bringing him bread and wine and giving him an oral blessing after Abraham had been in a gruesome battle. So in this account, we see how Melchizedek ministered to both Abraham's spiritual and physical needs. He fed him physically and he blessed him spiritually. Abraham then tithed to Melchizedek. The fact that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek really shows how esteemed Melchizedek was. He was a really big deal. And that's really all we know from Genesis. Then you fast forward a thousand years after Genesis, and there's one line hidden in Psalm 110.4, and it should sound familiar. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the same text as today, right, in Hebrews. And that's in Psalm 110. But really, that's the point you'll want to remember about him. This psalm links these few statements about him in Genesis to the epistle in Hebrews. It bridges the old and the new. And it's those exact words we see again. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we get to Hebrews. In addition to what we've already learned from him in Genesis, we learn a few more things in Hebrews about Melchizedek. And that is he's both king of righteousness and king of peace. And that's from the first two verses of chapter 7. Now, when you hear king of righteousness and king of peace, your ears may perk up a little bit because who does that sound like? Jesus, right? So that's on purpose. That's not a mistake. <laughs> so that was covered um, in your lesson today when you looked up those Isaiah passages in that question. These names of king of righteousness and peace are mentioned together in the Old Testament and the New Testament to signify Christ's kingdom. Melchizedek is not Christ, but he points to Christ. In the same way that Moses wasn't our savior, he was an intermediary, he was a messenger, he saw God face to face on the mountain, he prefigured Christ, he pointed to Christ. In the same way, Melchizedek points to Christ. Now, being both a king and a priest, which Melchizedek was, was essentially unheard of in all of the history of Israel. That's because offices of king and priest were always kept separate. And this was interesting to me. I didn't think about this, but I guess the nation of Israel was concerned about the separation of powers because that's why they kept them separate. So if kings served as both kings and priests, they could be tempted to use their rank as priest and their corresponding spiritual powers to influence their own political power as king. So they couldn't be both. But the fact that Melchizedek was described as righteous 
tells us that he was a godly man, or stated otherwise, conformed to the standard of God. There evidently was no concern that Melchizedek would abuse either role as king or priest. And so he served in both roles, and he did so in righteousness. Also from our text in Hebrews 7, we know that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Melchizedek is not a descendant of Abraham. And so in that sense, he establishes a completely different line of priests than the Levitical priests who descended from Aaron. So most scholars reason that Melchizedek's lineage is not known or is not provided in Scripture to emphasize the difference between his priesthood, through which Christ would be established, and Aaron's priesthood. As I already stated, in Aaron's priesthood, through which the Levitical priesthood was established, lineage was the basis for establishing priesthood alone. Christ couldn't come from Levi. He was descended from Judah. It tells us that in Scripture over and over again. So necessarily, God had to bring in Melchizedek to completely end the Levitical line of priests and establish an entirely new line for Christ to come. Completely separate. We can't continue the law. All this focus on the differences between the Old Testament and Melchizedek shape our knowledge and our understanding of Christ's priesthood. Christ's priesthood is Melchizedekian. That's a nice word. Not from Aaron, not Levitical. And we can't neglect the greatness of Melchizedek because his greatness helps us understand the greatness of Christ. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron, and more than the law. And you'll see those last two, greater than Aaron and more than the law, happen later when we get to chapter 11 in Hebrews. So if that's true, necessarily, Christ is greater than all of them as well, including Melchizedek. Now, Christ's priesthood is superior to the Old Testament priesthood because Christ's priesthood is permanent and based on a better covenant. We already know how the new covenant is better than the old because we talked about that last week. The new covenant is better because it gives the people a new heart with the desire to love and obey the Lord. So we have a better covenant that is the basis for Christ's better priesthood. And that's a lot of better. So what? What's it all mean? I get that it's better. What am I going to do with it? Well, actually, the answer is right in the text from today. Because this priesthood is better, Hebrews 7, 18 through 19 tells us we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's your response. Through which we draw near to God. Schreiner, who's a commentator that you've heard quoted several times already, says it this way. A new order has arrived with a new priesthood. What sets it apart is that there is a better hope. For what makes the hope better is that believers actually draw near to God through Jesus' priesthood. The Levitical priesthood did not have the same efficacy. Instead, it reminded believers of their sins and failings. The Levitical priesthood doesn't bring people near to God with confidence and boldness. So, 
we can draw near to God with confidence and boldness, while at the same time being reverent, humble, and thankful. Remember a few weeks ago when we had a drama instead of worship music? Hopefully, if you weren't here, you were able to get online, and if you haven't already, this is probably going to not make sense, but there is a link where you can view a video of it. Well, the women who came through the temple to address the priests in our drama had to be escorted by a man, unless you were me, because I forgot my escort, and I ran down. I was the first woman. That was the first mistake. Don't make me number one. But uh, they had to come down through the court of men, and bring their requests to the priests. Then receive the word from the Lord through the priest. They couldn't go directly to God. They didn't have direct access. But then at the end of our little skit, Roberta Ash came running, running. Roberta was running down, and we tore off the curtain from the most holy place to signify Christ as our forerunner giving us free access to the Most Holy, God Almighty. Well, hopefully that drama drove home the difference between the Old Testament priesthood and Christ's priesthood to you. It makes me appreciate our better covenant that we hear about, our better hope, and because of it, we're able to draw near to God. Christ's priesthood offers so much. It is indeed better. So if being able to draw near to God weren't reason enough for why Christ's priesthood is better, there's a few other reasons outlined in this chapter. It's better because it lasts forever. Christ is our our high priest forever. And how is it that we know he's our priest forever? Because it says right there in verse 16, his life was indestructible and he became priest by the power of an indestructible life. Christ, as high priest, offered himself as the sacrifice. No other priest could do that. The Old Testament priests continually offered sacrifices over and over again. But then they died, and then a new one would take over. They didn't actually sacrifice their own flesh. Through the sacrifice of Christ's perfect self for us, perfection is offered for us. We have new hearts because of Christ. All this is possible by the power of his indestructible life. So how should we respond to the great truth that he's our great high priest forever and he's better? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning and think about Jesus as my great high priest forever. I just don't. But I do now. (laughs) I mean, and maybe you do too. You think of him as Savior, comforter, intercessor, life giver. I mean, you could probably, I mean, you could do a whole lecture on that, right? Or whole study. All the names of Jesus, if you've ever studied his names, great high priest doesn't jump off the page at me. I think it's because I've always had direct access to God. Before I knew I needed God, I didn't even try to access him, so it didn't even matter. So really, I don't know it any other way. And you probably don't either, right? We didn't live in the Old Testament times. And so I can take for granted what a blessing direct access to God really is. So these suggested responses that we have that I'm going to um, provide really are suggestions for me too. 
I say this in my group all the time when we're having a discussion. I'll say, I'm speaking to myself, and I, and I am. I, I'm speaking to myself. So hopefully one of these will resonate with you. So these are my suggested responses. First, live your life like you have the power of an indestructible life. Because you do. I do. And what I really mean by this is have and keep an eternal perspective. Listen again to Hebrews 7, 15 through 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. It is by this same power of an indestructible life that we are heirs with Christ. Because Christ has an indestructible life, so do you. He gave that to you when he sacrificed himself on the cross, not only bearing all of your sins, past, present, future, but also immuting to you all his heavenly benefits, eternal life being chief among them, an indestructible life. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, it, it says something, but I'm going to pause. Okay, there we go. The Spirit himself bears witness, witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Because you have been saved and raised up with him. Christ has been raised. You will be raised together with Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Keep an eternal perspective. It's another way of saying that. So it sounds really great to remember that we need to live in the power of an indestructible life and actually do that. I don't know what that looks like practically for you, but at the very least, knowing that you do have the power of an indestructible life should give you an eternal perspective that otherwise should be easily lost in that day-to-day -day worldly living. I can have that eternal perspective and know about it, but it can be so easily lost. So to keep it, to keep that eternal perspective, what do we have to do? We have to draw near to him. And that's my second point. So if you remember one thing about today's lecture, let it be this. Because Jesus is our high priest, we're able to draw near to God. Our response to this truth should necessarily be to actually draw near to him. What good is his sacrifice if I don't? If I don't, I'm wasting it. And I may lose my eternal perspective of the power of an indestructible life in the process. So how do I draw near? 
How do you draw near? Two weeks ago, our lesson included Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And from our lesson covering this verse, we also learned that this term, draw near, is used consistently in Hebrews to represent a person approaching God, which is possible only when one's sins are forgiven through the sacrifice and intercessory ministry of a high priest. The encouragement to draw near to God's throne implies that Christians have the privilege of a personal relationship with God. It really is a privilege to have this personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Just like any personal relationship that you have with your friends, your spouse, your siblings, your parents, children, or really any personal relationship, you're not going to cultivate a close one, a personal one, unless you spend time with them, right? And it's no different with Jesus. You got to spend time with him. You can't enjoy fellowship with him unless you really know him. And I'm not talking about knowing intellectually or with a head knowledge, but actually knowing him with your heart. How are you spending your time with Jesus? How are you communicating with him? Are you reading his word? Not just to know, but to know with your heart. Seeking after him in these ways, and you know that the promise of James 4, 8 will be realized when you draw near to the God, he draws near to you. Do you think there are times when drawing near to God in these ways I've mentioned is easier or becomes more naturally maybe? In my own experience, I can tell you, I don't draw near to God when things are going well or when I'm relying on my own strength. So I'll share just a short story of um, how this is an example in my own life. And if you were here a couple years ago when I gave my testimony, it'll be repeat, and it's really not that big of a story. Um, It's not horrific, but it's just the story that comes to my mind when I think about when I drew near to him. So we have a son, David, who's six, and he's completely healthy, by the way. just want to say that up front. But suddenly, when he was four... He couldn't use his hands. It was very strange. And um, he'd walk around like this. His hands were stiff. They hurt. They started to swell. They were painful, very painful. And he could bend at this joint, which, you know, is where your fingers meet your hands. There's a name for that, but I don't know what it is. And, but he couldn't, he couldn't make a fist. He couldn't bend his fingers. So over the course of 24 hours, it grew worse. And... On the morning of his fourth birthday, literally on his birthday, he couldn't open his own birthday gifts. He couldn't manipulate the paper. His sister did it for him. So it was really scary, and it was this really long process to try to figure out what was going on. Um, Lots of doctor visits, hospital visits, ER visits. Um, I can skip all those medical details. The bottom line is he had a virus. (laughs) That was it. But they had to rule out all kinds of really scary things in the process, right? And it was really annoying that it took a week to figure this out. And my husband was like a total mess. (laughs) I mean, I remember driving to the ER and he was just like, he could barely drive. He just was, you know, 
really shaken. And I just felt so calm and peaceful about it. And it made no sense. It made absolutely no sense. And I looked at him with really, truly full confidence that was only from the Lord, because I can be a drama queen about anything in my mind medical. Um, And I told him everything would be okay. And it was. I prayed God would reveal to us what was wrong and give us comfort and peace. And he did. And that is not a natural inclination of mine. So, believe me when I say that was a hard, unsettling time. But because I drew near to him in that process, he comforted me in a way I hadn't experienced before. It's a really small example. And I know, I know for a fact, that many of you have had far more extreme situations that you have been in and experienced. But I'd venture to say the times you drew nearest to him were in those experiences. Times that were hard, times when you felt hopeless, helpless, defeated. Drawing near to the Lord is also difficult when you passively drift away from the things of godliness. Remember the first warning that the Hebrews author offered to his audience. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In this verse, it refers to the gospel. The same is true this week. We have to be careful not to drift away from the Lord when we draw near to things or people other than him. And it can happen before we even realize it. The Lord revealed to me one way to draw near to him that may not be so obvious as spending time with him in his word and in prayer. Although both being in the word and in prayer are elements of this. But have you ever considered that one way to draw near to God is to tell others about him? To tell others about Jesus? I'll try to explain this. This is kind of a new thought for me, honestly. You can't tell people about Jesus unless you actually really know him. Right? We've already discussed that drawing near enables you to really know Christ in a personal way. I think of it much like preparing for this lecture. Maybe you've given a lecture before. Maybe you can recall back to when you were in school and you gave a presentation. Or maybe you had to do that in your workplace. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you've taught Sunday school. Maybe your kids have asked you a really hard question and you didn't know how to answer it. And you had to go back and review and study and figure out the answer. You can't teach someone something you don't already know, right? So with this lecture, I'm going to remember the details of this passage a lot differently than you because I'm standing here, right? And when I share Jesus with others, I have to know him completely differently. It was with my heart to be effective in communicating about him and why he's better than anything this world has to offer. Sharing your faith can be difficult. It's intimate. It can feel risky. It's a command that requires his strength because he is the one 
and business of changing hearts, not me. He simply uses his people to carry out his purposes. Thankfully, the Lord goes before us, doesn't he? And he prepares hearts. Before sharing your faith, you have to draw near to the Lord in prayer. It's an absolute necessity. We seek his wisdom in knowing the right time to bring up our faith, to open doors to the conversations that we couldn't have otherwise manufactured, to soften the heart of our message hearers, to give us the actual words when ours fail us. Even though the audience of Hebrews was comprised of believers already, I still think it's instructive on how we can tell others about Christ. The author of Hebrews reminded his audience over and over how Jesus was better than the law, Moses, the angels, the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, and correspondingly the law as well. Our audience today is different in the sense that, for the most part, we don't have to convince them that Jesus is better than living under the law of Moses or showing them how Jesus is greater than the angels. I think our challenge lies in that we tell and show them how Jesus is better than our own worldly comfort, our perceived independence, our own self-sufficiency, success, wealth, the list goes on. Our comfortable, independent, self-sufficient, successful, wealthy audience may forget that Jesus is better than all that. I confess to you, I am not great about sharing with people my faith in Christ. And I'm going to share with you the first time, shamefully, first and only, that I've shared Christ, hopefully to illustrate how I was able to draw near to him during that process. For some reason, I find it really difficult and like I'm trying too hard when I share Christ. And for whatever reason, I decided I'd start with my own family, which is kind of a hard place to start. So I'm going to share this story with you, not so that you'll remember the story, but that you can see how I drew near to him by doing it. So last spring, so very um, recent, I went to California for a week uh, to, let, to be with my brother and his family. My sister-in-law had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer uh, the prior fall. She was nearing the end of her treatment, and it was a correspondingly very aggressive treatment. By the time I went to be with her, she'd already gone through chemo, a double mastectomy, and was going through daily radiation. She has multiple underlying health conditions, which made her treatment even more difficult. So I was going to help. I was going to drive my eight-year-old niece to school, to cook, but mostly just to keep my sister-in-law company. It was an honor, and it was actually really fun. It was one of my favorite memories of the entire year. So, during my visit, on the second night, in fact, I was there, the Lord opened up a conversation for me to share my faith. I actually didn't know where they stood. I had a suspicion, but I didn't know. So, during that conversation, I learned that my sister-in-law is a universalist, which means she believes everyone will be saved. And I learned that my brother won't talk about what he believes, not even to his own wife, because in his own words, it doesn't matter. 
So learning that he's basically an agnostic, for those of you who don't know, agnostic means a person believes um, nothing's known or can be known about the existence or nature of God or anything beyond material phenomena. A person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. So when I pressed him on why you're here, what happens when you die? What's the point? His answers were all the same. It doesn't matter. And basically, he was telling me, I don't want to talk about it. Be quiet. That's, that's really what he was saying. So, more than that, I learned the fundamental difference that existed between me and my sister-in-law was that she believes that people are inherently good, and I don't. I mean, she looked at me incredulously. So you believe in hell? I'm like, yeah, I do. And I thought about how I have to know my audience in her, and she had just told me about all these, um, I don't want to say humanitarian efforts, but things going on in the world that upset her, you know, just injustice and terrible things that happen. And I'm like, you know, all those things that happen, all those perpetrators of evil, what do you, what do you want to happen to them? That deep-seated need for justice that you feel. I'm thankful, unless that they repent and come to Christ, they're not going to be in eternity with me. I find comfort in that. So, she just couldn't understand. I really felt ineffective in trying to explain how Christ was good news to her. But the problem is, about the good news is, if you think you're already good, it's not, a, it's not good news, right? She's like, I don't understand, Lynn, you're so good. I'm like, oh no, oh no, no. And she said, well, how can you say that? And he said, well, if you study a holy God long enough, you'll see it really quickly. You'll see why you need saving for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all. I saw firsthand the reality of Romans 9.18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. My sister-in-law walked away from that conversation convinced that I'm worried for the eternity of her soul, and I am. And my brother walked away silent and aloof. So, like I told you before I told you this story, I want you to remember not the details of how that conversation went, nor the pain of the outcome, but how drawing near to the Lord is absolutely necessary before, during, and after sharing your faith with someone. Here's how I drew, God, drew near to God through this process. Remember I said that one of the ways you can draw near is through prayer? Well, I prayed a lot before I went, that God would open up conversations to the things of godliness. Many of you in this room prayed for me, for them, before I left, for the same reasons. And you can't make these things up how they happen, right? The whole reason this even came up is because my niece came with a blanket wrapped around her head to the table. And my sister-in-law laughed. She goes, he looked like the Virgin Mary. 
And then she stopped and she looked at me and she looked at her, at her daughter and she's like, you probably have no idea who the Virgin Mary is, do you? She shook her head. And then it just opened up. I, we can't make these things up, right? Like I couldn't have manufactured that any better. I'm like, that's amazing. So I really feel like God delivered in just opening that door to be able to even have that conversation. Because you don't just sit down and say, so, maybe you do, I don't know. But in this situation, I didn't just sit down and say, so, what you believe? What's going on in your heart? I didn't. So prayer was fundamental before, but it was also fundamental after, and it still is. So after I came home, and I still do, I pray in a much different way now. There's power in knowing right? I didn't know before. We'd never talked about it. My brother's almost eight years older than me. By the time I became a believer, he lived in a different state. You know, we talk, but it's not, it's not the same, you know, when you see someone maybe twice a year. So there's power, no matter how painful, in knowing the truth. If there's any pain, The Christian life is joyful, but if there's any pain, it's that. I didn't expect to get emotional, but you have to draw near for comfort in a whole new way. Right? So... The good news is Hebrews 7.25 exists. I draw near to that hope. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Those who draw near to God. You can't forget that phrase. So he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I want to leave you with a charge. Who's your uttermost? Think about your sphere of domain. Think about where you live, where you work, where you play, who you're with. There's a whole lot of uttermost going on. There's a danger in thinking of the uttermost being so far off they are unreachable, that they live in some other country, on another continent, but they don't. Maybe you have the uttermost living in your own home. My brother's the uttermost. My sister-in-law's the uttermost. My now almost nine-year-old niece is the uttermost. And so I draw near to the throne of grace. With what? Confidence and boldness. Asking him to do only what he can do. Save the uttermost because he is always 
living to make intercession for them. So when you leave this place, I pray you draw near. You draw near to the Lord with confidence and boldness on behalf of the uttermost. Literally write their names down. All the while recognizing the only way that you're able to do this is because Jesus is your great high priest. So when you wake up in the morning and you think about Jesus being your great high priest, or when you study the names of Jesus again, I hope that priest takes on a new dimension, more meaning, more depth. I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I just thank you again for this time. I pray that you will enable us to draw near to you in a way that we never have before. Recognizing that you, as our great high priest, give us access fully, directly, that we can come before you with boldness and confidence to receive grace and mercy. We pray that we will come boldly on behalf of our uttermost. We pray that you will make conversations happen. We pray that they will draw near to you because we know if they do, you're able to save them. We thank you for that great truth. In Christ's name I pray, amen.